Welcome to Agile Engineering. A podcast covering subjects like DevOps, Agile, Development, Cloud, and more. Featuring Liam Gulliver, Pete Gallagher, Louise Paling, Misha Bell, and Jonathan Ralph. This is episode eight. Welcome to the Agile Engineering Podcast, episode number eight. Uh, in this episode, we're going to be discussing the Agile Engineering Principles and the final four. Joining me, as always, are my co-hosts, Jonathan Ralph. Hello. Misha Bell. Bonjour. Pete Gallagher. Good day. And on this occasion, Louise can't actually make it. She's in the middle of hosting Women in Tech in Nottingham. So let's get right into it and pick up with those last four principles. Uh, Jonathan, do you want to kick us off? Yes. So the last four principles are number nine is continuous attention to technical excellence and good design enhances agility. Ten is simplicity. The art of maximizing the amount of work not done is essential. Number 11, the best architectures, requirements, and designs emerge from self-organizing teams. And number 12, at regular intervals, the team reflects on how to become more effective, then tunes and adjusts its behavior accordingly. So I was looking at these earlier today, and I was particularly interested in number nine, the continuous attention to technical excellence and good design enhances agility. Now, I think, personally, I think that's only half true. Good design, absolutely. But technical excellence suggests striving for perfection all the time when perfection isn't necessarily correct. Those two things are at odds with each other, right? Mm. Perfection is the enemy of done. I take number nine as a feedback loop, actually, and just feeding everything back in the vain hope, perhaps, as you've just said, that you can make it perfect through learning from your mistakes and making sure that your processes do feed back the end result all the way back to the start so that you can make those processes better every time you do it. But you're you're exactly right. It's never going to be perfect, but all you can do is feed back enough information that you can learn each time. You're going to make new mistakes, but please try not to make the same mistakes over and over again. What do we mean by technical excellence? It's another phrase that I think is so open to interpretation that it could go to the real extreme very easily. It feels like this is the first principle, though, that has talked about the quality of what we're delivering, not necessarily the frequency and the way we deliver it. It seems that they're yeah. trying to focus on making sure that attention to detail is part of what you're delivering. Technical excellence, to me, harks at the Kaizen quality of continuous team improvement so it's not just good enough to say my skill level is okay now and i can continue knocking out software without learning anything new principle nine feels more like it's trying to suggest that part of your delivery cycle should include an eye on technical excellence yeah what is kaizen kaizen is one of these principles that came out of the toyota systems and it's a japanese term meaning change for the better or continuous improvement it's back to that sort of almost martial arts process of training and drills that help you improve your skill rather than you just assuming that learn it once and, and i've mastered it straight away so 
Kaizen is very much a, a gradual, methodical improvement process. Practice makes perfect. Yeah, absolutely. But practice analyzing what you could do better and then changing those and then... Yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. Thank you for explaining. Certainly throughout the, the literature, it seems to a lot of people refer back to the Toyota way, which is this concept that people studied the way that Toyota Motor Corporation built cars and went about doing it right first time. And yeah. also that any person in the process could highlight where there was problems, which touches on a principle we'll come on to later. Software engineering is always described as a very young engineering process. The whole reason we've got this podcast is because there are still vague terms and there isn't an absolute standard that we all make use of yet because we are still learning what works for software delivery. Yeah, so Kaizen and continuous improvement is something that's part of Agile. And so I think this principle, certainly the first bit of this, technical excellence, Mm. talks about making sure that you remind yourself to work on your own skill set. I think there's also another element to that as well. With Kaizen, there's something else, and I'm, I'm really sorry if I pronounce this wrong. What is it? Imai, which are the three pillars of Kaizen. So that's housekeeping, waste elimination, and standardization. Huh. That's really there to kind of help you with that continuous improvement. It's making sure things are going well. It's, it's getting rid of anything that doesn't work well and standardizing it so that it can be repeated uh, going forwards. So to me, that is a level of not technical excellence but process excellence pete how do you find juggling learning alongside client delivery work <laughs> that very <laughs> funnily enough um, that's something i've learned to be able to do a little bit better when i first became self-employed it was really difficult actually because i came from a company that i was the only software dev and i was there for a decade and i knew what i knew but i taught myself quite a lot VB actually is what I taught myself when I was there because I was doing assembler as my day job and I taught myself VB because I, I recognised that was one of the things I needed to learn. But when I was made redundant and started up on my own, of course, work takes top priority because you need to pay the bills. So I spent nearly all of my time just taking the stuff that I'd learned in my job and trying to get work from that. You learn on the job when you're doing that, but it's quite a dangerous thing to do because two things can happen. Either one, you just can't do it, which is unlikely you will make something work or far more likely is you will take longer to do it than really you should. And then your brain is saying, well, I should be charging for this, but you can't charge clients for your own learning Mm. in your own time. And actually that feeds back into employees in that you need to build that into either their daily or weekly or monthly or yearly quote of of work needs to be self-improvement. Some people would say even that doesn't necessarily have to be directly applicable to your job. It could be as simple as make people go and work a couple of weeks in a different department so you can learn how that works. And I know that some of the big banks and credit agencies do exactly that, where they they send people, they second them and uh, send them around. Or the other one is just give them something else to do, like go and learn a language. And it's really good to split your learning away from just doing your job. I don't know if I answered your question there, actually, but managing it is plan ahead and try and learn what you think you might need. Um, and, and certainly companies should be doing that as well. If they see projects coming down the line, then really please make sure that the learning is done before you start the job. <laughs> At least then you can make some quick decisions when you do start. To me, learning is part of the value add of delivery. It might be a prereq, but it leads to the value delivery. In my opinion, somebody should be paying for that. And I don't think it should be, say, the vendor or stakeholder. And whether or not that's 
paying for it in terms of monetary value, time, whatever, they should in some way accept the fact that it is part of the delivery. I'd get involved with quite a lot of bespoke stuff and kit from companies. And one of the companies I do work for, they make change machines and kiosks. And they'll often send me a new piece of kit and I will have to learn how that new piece of kit works and I will charge them for that learning process. But if a client comes to me and says, I want a new website and I decide that I'm going to do it in Blazor and I don't know a great deal, I'm not going to charge them for that bit of learning, even though I might have identified that that is the best thing to do. If I say, but I don't know anything about it and I'm going to charge you for me learning it, they will go, okay, we'll go somewhere else and buy. <laughs> so I think it's quite hard. I think you can budget in companies for the learning that your staff need to do, but I don't think you could pass that on directly as a, we need to learn this unless it's specifically bespoke to the client that you've got perhaps. That's what I was going to have said. Yeah. If it, if it's necessary for what they're asking for, then yeah, that should be charged. But if it's superfluous and it's going to enhance your skill set, and so it'll make you even more attractive to other prospective clients, then that's a good thing. And so like, it's a win-win, I guess, for both sides. That's what budgets are for though. I suppose it depends on how honest and open you've been about what approach you're going to take to deliver a project. You're Example there, Pete, of saying that you will use Blazor because you fancy it. That would introduce an element of risk if you actually didn't know the technology. And I suppose in some respects, pre-sales for some companies involves uh, a degree of bluster and over-promising and under-delivering. And so in some respects, the more you're honest and saying, yes, I've delivered 50 projects using this tech stack. I'm confident that I can meet this. I don't know how many contract negotiations actually include that kind of conversation to actually say, we are risking this because you've handed us new kit or you've said in the specification that you need to us to use a different process. So I suppose the, the technical excellence, it depends on what you're being asked to do. To me, that's not technical excellence. The excellence would be, I am already an expert in X and I know how to do it here and I can deliver it for your budget like this and I can do it to this quality because I know that I can do this already. But when you're learning something new, your quality takes a hit because you're still having to learn that new thing. Even if it might be all the rage, what all the cool kids are doing, or the right thing to use today, it isn't necessarily the right thing for that job. You're all very good at what you do, um, and you have the fundamentals down. Like, you, you know, if you're a good developer you should be able to transfer like you know the skills from like learning like say c sharp over to like java because well and i know that they're particularly similar but still um you know and so if you've got if you're a technically excellent developer fundamentally then surely that technical excellence should be able to be carried over regardless of the tool that you're using like a carpenter like i guess maybe i i guess don't really know where I'm going with this. Um, if you're good at something, then you're good at something. But I, I do understand, like, you know, if you are learning something new, then it's going to be more difficult mm -hmm. to kind of um, implement that kind of rigor because you're unaware of what you don't know. <laughs> you know I guess, what, what does technical excellence mean to you? I've spent a little bit of time when we've been doing this looking at what the words they use are. And I think it's important to look at the word they don't use in that. It's continuous attention to technical excellence, not a continuous attention to achieve technical excellence. So I think it's important mm. to, to, to note that difference there. They only just try to make sure you're trying your best at all times 
to be as good as you possibly can be with the tools you've got. And we've said that before, haven't we, where you you can only do the best that you possibly can at the time with all the knowledge and information that you've got at that particular moment in time. And when you have a retrospective, then you try and fill in those gaps. And so, yeah, technical excellence, I don't think is achievable. It goes right back to the very start of that conversation. But you can certainly achieve the promise. You can try and be the best you can feedback all the information like i said at the beginning and and make sure you take and learn every time reminds me and i've probably used this phrase in the past but it reminds me of a phrase that my mentor and boss at the bbc used which was the constant quest for perfection you're not necessarily going to reach that as pete says but you are aiming for better than last sprint so in that sense it's important to have that direction of travel pete's point about this being interesting with these word choices is that again the second half of this sentence is good design it's not just about have you got the skills is what you're delivering fit for purpose as well because it's the right thing to be doing it's interesting that this one is very much talking about how you deliver it and what you deliver it that both of those things can help you with the agility this principle is, is a really strong one for me because it it says do the right thing with the right design and you will go faster yeah, and that design doesn't necessarily have to be the design of your application, if it's an application you're making. It could be the, the design of your process, the design of your tools around mm. your process. Whatever can get you there in the fastest possible way, in the most re- repetitive way possible, which sort of segues onto that 10th point in a way as well, nicely, yeah. in the simplicity, the art of maximising the amount of work not done is essential. And you take that learning around each loop and... If you've got really good programmers, they will design tools that makes that next loop faster or more repetitive or better. And certainly your boss would tell you that he wants you to automate yourself out of a job so he can give you more work. (laughs) I think you hear that phrase an awful lot of times when people fear AI and all the rest of it. But in many ways, what they're actually saying is, I'd want you to do more value add work. So I think what you're saying, Jonathan, is a good point. The point of automation is to automate away the boring stuff, automate away the red tape, the bureaucracy, the governance, make things super simple for people to deliver value and more complex value. You know, Nobody's trying to take anybody's job away. We're just trying to make you more valuable as a human being. It's true because the art of maximising the amount of work not done is a subtle sentence, but it's saying don't waste your effort. If it's not yeah. bringing you a positive outcome then why are you doing it and that goes back to the mi stuff so the the second bit is waste elimination if you're expending effort to build something that is you do all the time you do it manual you, you know it takes you even if it's just five minutes or 30 minutes an hour if you're doing it repetitively and you do it by hand each time that is complete wastage of both your time energy and any value you're adding because it's not really adding value Computers are built specifically to do repetitive tasks. Humans are built to do tasks that require thinking. So obviously we've got AI later on, but we won't concentrate too much on that. Uh, Do you, in your respective companies, build any time in to build tooling? Or is it one of those abstract things that just gets done when and if? Automation is kind of what my team does. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but like, do you build the I, tools or do you just go buy them off the shelf a little bit both so customize through building but largely we do a lot of automation through your devops which is a absolutely fantastic application lifecycle management tool as is github and even through things like github actions now we can automate stuff that isn't code related you know your whole workflow that's 
into that maximizing the amount of work not done right i've set up a workflow on, on my own github with github actions that if i want to go and start a new project i've got workflows that i don't even have to open an IDE or anything now i'll create a new repository from my template repository name it whatever i need to and it will actually go and generate the base project for me with all the right namespaces um, and you can do that across multiple languages as well so i've done a .NET one and i've done a go one and i've written a blog post about it my blog which is lgulliver.github.io uh, and you can see that on there about dynamically generating projects i normally point people to the classic xkcd cartoon about is it worth the time there's a great diagram that the cartoonist has created it's xkcd.com slash 1205 for reference and it's about how often you do the task and how much time you would shave off by automating it and so there is a pragmatic balance here between yes i could build a tool to do this but if it only takes me five minutes every month then there is less return on that value Misha. I don't understand number 10 at all, really. I don't really understand the sentiment. You all seem to have like run with the idea of, you know, automating things like a computer being like, you know, doing the things that humans should do. But how do you know that that's what it means? I don't understand. To me, it's incredibly ambiguous because the work is still being done, but it's just not being done by a human. Does it not count if it's a computer? What will happen when the uprising comes and they become sentient and they see that we're all not counting them as doing things? So I, <laughs> that was a little bit of a tangent that I went on. but I, for one, welcome our <laughs> robot overlords. Um, I do not Excellent. want to be a battery at all. <laughs> Um, some form of hybrid I'm down with but yeah why phrase it that way I don't I, I mean I'm all for double negatives I love them I'm British I use them all the time but it just seems it seems unnecessary why couldn't they have phrased it in an easier to understand way that is less ambiguous if you change the word work to effort Misha does that help effort not being done yeah L less effort then why aren't people trying hard enough is what I would get from that. Why would you take a taxi rather than walking? Because I'm a lazy bugger. Yeah, programmers are inherently <laughs> lazy. We are, we are bred to be lazy, which is really good. And, and the point I was going to make before you said all of that, actually, it's not always about you either. <laughs> if you take all of the, say you've got one really fantastic programmer and they love to be able to automate themselves out of a job, they can give those tools to other people in the team and they can use them without needing to have the ingrained skill that that one person has got about the, the lower level detail of that particular part of the job. Mm. Or when that person leaves the company, they, although there's a danger side to this, that tooling remains. And so you've not got that big gap in knowledge and you suddenly can't do your job anymore. Of course, you do also need to have the IP that went in to create those tools so that you can maintain them. By um, IP, you mean but, intellectual property? Yes, uh, and he hasn't done it at home. Uh, so there is a bit of danger with that as well. <laughs> and you do hear about these companies that have just not upgraded this old 386 PC because they've got a piece of software on there that they, they've got no knowledge about and can't upgrade. But yeah, that's, that's generally what I'm saying is take the path of least resistance. And if that includes writing yourself a script to automate a little part of your job that takes half an hour, but now it then takes 30 seconds, that's great. Well, it's a return on investment, I think, is the thing you're looking for, isn't it? So going back to, to my example earlier, if you're doing something that takes you 
30 minutes manually each time and you're doing it frequently, let's say a couple of times a day. And that amounts to what at the end of the week, you've got three quarters of a day, nearly a day's worth of work just in that manual repetitive task. If I could spend that day automating it instead, I don't have to do that. I, I, I gain a day's worth of work for every week going forwards that I could spend doing more valuable stuff. One of the most difficult things you can do with any team is have the attitude of we always do it that way. So dangerous. It's so dangerous. And also, in some respects, this, Misha, is is saying to us, we need to take time to actually document all the steps that we do to complete a task. And if when you look at that and reflect on it, you think that is 74 steps. Why the heck is this process so ridiculously long? That gives you the reflection, the opportunity to simplify it. And so... The work not done is saying, why would you do 74 steps when you can get it down to 50 of the first iteration and then 25 and and less? What we don't do often enough, although the Agile does promote that, which I think is heading towards principle 12, is that reflection point of actually saying, well, we need to, as a team, take stock of what we do and how we do it because we need to not do stuff that we don't need to do. I think that's what principle 10 is getting at. Fair play for you to for inferring that amount of stuff from the words that they have used. <laughs> that's, that's fair. I understand that what I'm doing is taking my experience and placing it on that. You're correct that there is not a lot to go on in that sentence. They're giving their own definition of simplicity. Sorry, I'll calm down. Like, but in, in some respects, what they've done is, like most things, they are leaving it open for interpretation. And I think that's the thing about these Agile principles is they are saying th- these are hints towards how you might improve. They're not a, mm. a rule book. I kind of disagree with you there, Misha, a little bit. Because if you take that middle <laughs> section out and it's just simplicity is essential, that rule still applies? Yeah. I agree with that wholeheartedly. I don't agree with the maximising the amount of work not being done. It's just grammatically awful. And <laughs> yeah. like, I just don't think that it gets a point across. I think it could get the point across without that middle section. Yeah, but. Yeah. They're not redefining it. There. I think it's kind of two separate points. I don't think I've come across this in any other real sector, but it tends to be more in IT. There's there's the KISS principle, not uh, rock yeah. and roll all night, I was made for loving you, uh, etc. Detroit Rock City. <laughs> oh, um, gotcha. Okay. It's keep it super simple. I thought it was keep it simple, stupid. It might be either or. <laughs> Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. I, Even sorry, these I, things are open to interpretation. <laughs> I've always known it as keep it super simple. And yeah, we don't like calling people stupid, but I normally refer to it the way Misha said. They're not stupid. They're just less experienced. So keeping your application designs, keep your process simple, keep it simple enough that people can follow it, and keep it simple enough that eventually, like if, if it's a process, it could be automated out of the way. Because as soon as you automate that thing out of the way, there is going to be another thing that comes in as well, and another new process that gets tacked on the end. Do you know how they can simplify that? By uh, keeping it super simple. Yeah, take the middle bit out. Making sure that it's repeatable. Anybody should be able to repeat a process given a small amount of training. They shouldn't need to go away for three months on a training course to be able to learn your systems, I don't think. Yeah. It used to be that we deployed websites by uploading the files manually via FTP and three people would do that simultaneously and the whole thing wouldn't work. But now we create full deployments 
scripts that come straight from our source control into prod and this has yeah. all come out of just trying to simplify process and make it that the computer's going to do all of that you just put your input in and the output comes out loads and loads of examples where this principle isn't followed there are companies today still large enterprises uh, and even startups where it can take not just hours but days to release something out into production there's been somebody i've been talking to recently where they work for a business that turns over hundreds of million pounds a year right one of their core applications takes two three days to get from staging to production back to the phoenix project that window of risk you actually end up resulting in more often than not a change failure and a change failure being anything that would uh, impair service availability or increase the amount of errors stuff that would think cause things to go awry as part of that deployment not necessarily complete system outage but that also counts but something that degrades the service of the end users and that's nonsense in this day and age that's just not okay it also massively impedes creativity because if you know it's going to take three days to get through a system and it's hard, you're far less likely to do something a little bit creative. You're far more likely to stick to the tried and tested, let's just do something we know works because we don't want to do something wickedly creative in case it all falls apart. It's taken three days and what a waste of time. Whereas if, if it's minutes, oh, that didn't work, let's just roll that back and, and we're off. So yeah, I think making sure that these things are straightforward, simple and fast. I think fast is really important. It doesn't have to be lightning fast. I think an hour is still okay, depending on what it is. Um, but I suppose if you're working for NASA and your software is out there orbiting Mars, you've not got that opportunity. But for the most of us, we've not got that problem. And you can always A-B test and send out to, to small sections of your user base and you've got options in that as well. So I wonder if that ties nicely into point 11 which is the best architectures, requirements, and designs emerge from self-organizing teams. Your CICD processes, your testing, your application, your deployment process, your SRE, all require a level of architecture. That could be architecting the process. It could be architecting the pipelines, the application, and so on. They all have requirements like your recovery points, your service level objectives, your service level agreements, um, then you, you know you design that as part of a team too, right? I find it interesting that this point doesn't mention something Pete alluded to earlier, which is process. Because in some respects, mm. I think the most powerful thing that comes from self-organizing teams that can unblock themselves, or rather don't have blockers by reliance on other teams, is that they can work in a more coherent manner to whatever they want. And this point seems to be more about the design and the architecture of of what you're delivering rather than how you're working. And so in some respects, I would have preferred this one to feature some sort of nod to process because I think self-organizing teams are more powerful because of what they can unblock themselves rather than necessarily that they come up with better architectures because they are self-organizing. So I wonder why they've put the word requirements in there. Thoughts. I was going to go all the way back, actually, to architecture in that I think you can architect teams and processes. I think that can apply just as easily to that. And, and you you can let your team organise itself. But I think you do have to push a little bit because I don't think individually people will have that much freedom. But I think if you are talking to your employees and your employees are talking back, then you can allow that process to form a team 
I don't think a, a single person can just go and pick his desk up and go and move next to that person over there because he thinks it needs to be. I find that quite an interesting philosophy. I, I'm sure you'd, you'd be able to tell me otherwise. I fundamentally disagree with everything you just said. <laughs> Good. <laughs> you are not on any fence anymore, are no. you? <laughs> if, if I'd have picked my desk up at my previous company, I went and moved closer to where I think production is because that's where I needed to be. My boss would have come in and said, what the hell are you doing moving your desk over there? Why so, do you think you need to be there? Get your ass back where it was. So there's a couple of things here <laughs> that I'd really like to touch on. Firstly, I, I believe that it takes a high level of organisational maturity to really get the benefit of what I'm about to say, which ties into what you, you just said, Pete, in terms of if you did move your desk, people would be like, well, what, what are you doing? Realistically, Self-organizing teams should be to that level of self-organizing based on who the people need to be in it. I don't know if they still do it, but I remember there was a thing about Lego and the way they do Agile, and they would literally swap people around in teams. Another point based on what you're saying, Misha, this is a really vague point, and I th- and intentionally mm-hmm. so, you know, and I think that's true of all of the Agile principles. They're, they're open to interpretation intentionally because... Otherwise, they're prescribing a way of doing things, and that's what you have the the opinionated methodologies and frameworks for, right? This is a suggestion. But those self-organizing teams should be cross-functional. You, know, you should have somebody that can do or represent architecture. You should have somebody that can do or represent testing. You should have somebody that can do or represent requirements, and then people who can do the development or the deployment. The whole T-shaped people aspect as well as part of a team is is Mm. a big thing. And you should then do the opposite of Conway's law. Of course. Which Which is? is something we need to Google to get off the top of head to remember the right way around for it, but I can remember what the reverse is. The reverse is that you basically build your teams how you want your application to look not the other way around. Conway's law, this isn't necessarily the right wording off the top of my head, but I think Conway's law says something along the lines of any thing you build will take the same shape as your organization. Words to that effect. Any organization that designs a system defined broadly will produce a design whose structure is a copy of the organization's communication structure. Melvin E. Conway. So by reversing that, and shaping the communication path that you want from the off, then your application will represent the thing you've designed, your organizational design instead, right? But I find this interesting that a lot of the time we look at this from a technical point of view only, and therefore what we're saying with reverse Conway's law is if you don't want your database layer to be separate to your front end, you would sit everyone together rather than having a database team separate to the web design team. But Uh. in some respects, what I'm initially reading principle 11 you're sort of saying well how could we be creating better requirements when tends to be that requirements are handed to us but this speaks back to louise's point last episode that suggests that the definition of team really needs to be far wider than agile normally touches in other words we need stakeholders we need end users we need everybody in that team it's not just about engineering resources to deliver software it should include everybody that started the whole thing off in the first place so in some respects that aspect of principle 11 can work as long as your team is sufficiently large and by large i mean has the right people in it not just too many people in it to allow you to get better requirements because you've got the right people in the room to discuss that i think 
it's far too easy for us to fall into the trap of viewing this from agile equals engineering teams but really what we should be doing and and where the success of agile comes is when you can encourage more of the business to operate in this manner interesting um just to like make a point from like quite a long way back now but like i'm fine with the you know vagueness of the principles i i'm I'm glad that it's open to interpretation because i think that that lets it age better i mean it hasn't aged brilliantly but better but i just i don't understand the ambiguity of the of of some of the principles in like what what it's trying to convey i guess like i don't want it to prescribe things but just to be clear about what it's actually trying to say i just that that's the kind of the thing that i would take uh like have an issue with oh i was going to make a point off the back of what jonathan's just said oh yes so the self-organizing team bit so have you all experienced like you know being in a self-organizing team so like what would that mean to you does that mean like um internally and also with the client does that mean that um it's kind of like you know a popularity contest like you know the people pick the people that they want to work with the most and there's somebody left out in the rain you know on their own this is entirely why uh pete spent the last decade working on his own he's he just didn't get picked <laughs> oh no, no, I self-organise into my own team uh, because <laughs> I hate everyone. Uh, <laughs> That's fair, yeah. In fact, I'm going to make oh. the Engineering Agile podcast and become a splitter. <laughs> I'm going to make my own podcast with Blackjack. <laughs> I do, that's from uh, The Life of Brian. That's just fantastic. If you've not watched that movie, go and watch that movie. Yeah, you make a good point there. I mean, I've worked in a team of one as far as software development is concerned but I was in a team of three for the development team often I would move myself around where the work needed to be if if there was a service issue I would go and spend more time in the service department than I would developing uh, or if there was an electrical issue electronics issue that I was also involved with then I would go and sit with my boss who who co-developed the electronics where I was but now self-employed wise I just work with the people that that are my client and very rarely do I actually work with many other software developers they come to me because they don't have the specific resource so you make a really good point I don't have that experience that you have of working in bigger teams that have that luxury of moving lots of development resource around to different points I think you made a very good point there Pete in terms of whether or not you meant to make it intentionally but teams are really two things so they exist on paper first and foremost as a team of members Misha, Jonathan, Pete, Louise, Liam but if we've got another team or a situation arises where people need to swarm a problem it doesn't matter what team you're from you get everybody together and for the duration of solving that problem you are a team and you're organizing the way that you're going to handle it and the way that you're going to do it I don't think it's necessarily Uh. a team that needs to be permanent it's a a team that gets together to deliver value and that value might be solving a problem in the actual oh my god something's gone wrong sense or one that's solving a problem through delivering value in building new software or a new feature or designing something together yeah i think i was coming out from a very traditional kind of standpoint (laughs) i think we should move on to my favorite one yeah the 12th principle honestly i love this one (laughs) At regular intervals, the team reflects on how to become more effective, then tunes and adjusts its behaviour accordingly. Yes, I agree. Let's move on. <laughs> cool. Uh, that's the that's the end of the episode. Done. 
Yep. <laughs> I think this is one area of Agile that most people agree on, or at least most practitioners do, do which is retrospectives, it's reflection, yep. it's health checks. There's a lot of tooling around how to operate these even remotely these days. And it's that how can we learn to be better if we don't reflect on what we've just done? And I think that's yeah. something we are good at in Agile. Something that goes back to what we were talking about earlier the, the, in this episode around point nine with things like Kaizen and Katas, you, you're doing the housekeeping, you're doing the waste elimination, you're looking at, okay, what went well and what should we keep doing and what should we drop and stop doing and what should we start doing to make things better? Okay. And that, that to me fulfills all three of those pillars. Yeah. Continuous feedback. Yeah. You want to make sure that everything feeds all the way through the system and back again so that you can take those learnings with you. Become <laughs> more agile. You know, it improves agility. Oh, yeah. I fully agree with it. I've got no... Is this the first time that a principal has touched upon sprint-style behaviour in how we organise agile? Because it talks about at regular intervals. Yeah. Is this the first principal that's actually suggested that regularity of reflection or the way we split work up i'm wondering whether principle three where it talked about deliver working software frequently from a couple of weeks to a couple of months hinted at that but that was again just about delivering to the client i think this is possibly the first time that they've suggested or, or reflected maybe in this principle that agile working is maybe best done on a cadence no i don't think it does i think it, it alludes to the fact that there should be a regular interview uh, interval. Whether that interval is monthly, quarterly, weekly, or, or fortnightly, depending on, on what works for you. And that's that's the important thing. You've got to make what works for you. Don't follow a strict to the letter process because somebody's written a blog post once about, you know what's great? 12-day sprints. Don't let it be prescriptive. Okay? Yeah. 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 I think you're right. In that sense, the whole point of Agile is to do the right thing for your situation. So in some respects, following the others, it's not necessarily going to fit what you need to do. But it just for me feels like at the end of a project isn't regular. That wouldn't be, for me, what Principle 12 is harping on about is actually saying, do it more frequently than just when you've got to the end of a delivery piece of work. Project lengths vary. But as long as it's that regular point it doesn't matter how regular that it how the frequency of that regularity which sounds like a nonsense sentence to say but it is those things and and i don't to an extent and this might be a very sweeping statement but i don't think most of these principles matter as long as you are upholding the manifesto in living it in whatever way you need to do it doesn't have to be to the letter in each of these things. And I, I think they're intentionally vague for a reason. Can't be. Yeah, exactly. And and I think that perhaps <laughs> that some of them also need to be updated because you know, mm. the manifesto and the principles now are quite old. But it, in my opinion, I don't think you need to follow all 12 of these. You don't need to live and breathe all 12 of them every day. Just be vaguely in that direction. Hard. You know? I, I, I read them very much like a horoscope actually where they've made them intentionally vague so that the most amount of people can get the most amount out of them it's a promise of being better basically that's, that's how i take it the whole thing really promises that that whatever you do will be better next time 
either you're going to make a better product next time, you're going to learn from what you do, so next time you can be better at how you do it and how fast you can do it and how repeatable it is. And I think if you read all of those things and you just take a couple of bits out of it, then then or so be it. I don't think you need to, to take any of these things literally. And I know I've spent time looking at the depth of the wording that they've used and what words they have used and what words they haven't used, but I, I think it's all sidelined to the overall mantra of just do it better next time yeah yeah i think so yeah reflect try and do uh the best you can anything that doesn't work scrap it anything that does work carry on yeah i don't think you can do any of it unless you learn and you can only really learn by doing something which sort of infers that you've done it at least once and the next time is going to be a result of whatever learning you've taken from that at least that's sort of my idea Okay. Jonathan, you look like you were about to say something. No, I was going to join in on this summary of what we've learned over the last three episodes, that it, it feels very much that this is trying to put some substance to what the Agile Manifesto is even more broad because it's a, a, a general course direction. These are attempting to at least provide a bit more substance to what you, you could look at the Agile Manifesto and say, well, that's great, but how does that work how, how does that work on my day-to-day role? And But I agree with you that some of the wording isn't as helpful as it could be, but I think it's a start. I think that's what's useful about the Agile Principles is that it's a start. Uh, for a start, it's generated three episodes of discussion from us because the very existence of this document helps us have conversations. You're right there as well in terms of the vagueness and opening it to interpretation, it, it, it spawned a lot of other ways of thinking out of that as well. We then have things like agile methodologies. You know, you've got Scrum, you've got XP, DSDM. I've already run out of ones I can think of off the top of my head. But you have all these Kanban. different ways. Yeah, Kanban. So you've got all these different ways of working now that try to push you into this direction of here's how you could live these 12 principles day in day out right when really no single one of those is the right answer because you've got to do what's right for your business now that might be i use all of these and i take the bits that i want and build my own sort of set menu out of it and build my own processes for my business and then add in a couple of my own flavors because Every business is unique. You don't have the same people. You don't have the same product. You don't have the same company culture throughout. Because if that was the case, work would be very dull and boring. Mm. And I would be out of a job. (laughs) 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 So I guess at this point, let's take a look at key takeaways. But I want to take a look at the key takeaways from an overall view, not just these four points we've been through you know we've spent a lot of time discussing these like jonathan said over the last three episodes what what do we think uh out of this is well, not necessarily the right answer but something that we can share with our listeners as our, our key insights here for me i still think that the phrase that supports the right attitude towards agile working is principle eight where we focus on being able to main at constant pace indefinitely and the idea that you don't have to go hell for leather at everything just because you think you can fit more velocity into a sprint every time you go around the cycle. So I think for me, the the focus early on 
the first episode we did was very much about how we engage the customer and make sure that we deliver things iteratively as continuous deployment so that we get that feedback. Moving on towards the end where we're talking about ways of working and how to work more collaboratively together. So I think for me that Principle 8 is still the strongest one that, that I focus on. I think I kind of explained it a little bit earlier, but basically learn and feedback your learning to everybody throughout the loop. All of the stakeholders need to learn every time and just make sure that you try and make it better next time. No matter what you do, there's always something to learn. I think all of this sort of promotes using your learnings to to fine tune your systems to make it better. Speaks to Jonathan's point there of maintaining a constant pace. Uh, everything you do should be to try and grease the wheels just that little bit more to make it a bit more simple, a bit more agile every time. For me, I think that um, the thing that kind of stands out the most and is a bit of a recurring theme is the people. I I think that you know I think that people are and should be at the forefront of everything and especially within software development you know not only the people like within the team making sure that they're happy um that they know what they're doing that they're motivated or disciplined that you know that they you're satisfying the client which is a person um as it stands you know our computer overlords have not gotten to us yet you know and then the software is a side product of happy uh you know motivated talented individuals mm. and if you get that right then i think that everything else should fall into place and then secondary to that is my favorite 12th principle of reflecting everybody you know using their learnings as pete said to improve the process and that's how you get to happiness and good software yeah, I, I mean, I think that it is very much about the people uh, as much as it is the software. There's really two things that stand out for me here. One, as always, communication is absolutely key. Yeah. You know, be it the requirements, be it the getting feedback. And then that ties into to, to what Pete was saying as well with the learning. You know, you need to learn to continuously improve. And if you're not learning, then you're not continuously improving and you can't learn without communicating. So it all kind of goes into this nice, maybe like some kind of figure of eight infinity cycle that we might call DevOps. Um, <laughs> and, uh, DevSecOps. A general, a general uh, cultural aspect. It, it, it isn't just a process. And, and, and this, is, this is the thing, you know, they are principles. And culture is built on principles, in my mind. It isn't a prescribed way of, you must follow these rules to the letter. Here are the 12 commandments of Agile. No, it's, these are the things we think you should be doing to help steer you in the direction of continuous delivery of value to users. And how you can help to improve the software, help to improve yourself, and in turn make happier teams which makes up for a better product in my mind yeah i fully agree yep <clears throat> thank you for listening to the agile engineering podcast uh, you can let us know your thoughts on agile principles uh, all 12 of them in fact or you can suggest topics for discussion by getting in touch with us on twitter at 
at Agile Eng Podcast or going to our website, which is agileengineeringpodcast.com, or you can contribute directly on our GitHub repo, which is github.com forward slash agile engineering podcast. We're looking to expand the podcast. We're actually looking at producing more content in terms of episodes, in terms of bringing guests in, in terms of production quality, as well as providing video content as well. Jonathan and I have been talking lots about this as well with the rest of the team, and we're looking at producing a sort of a five to 15 minute video show so we can dig in a little bit deeper into specific pieces you can contribute to that in a monetary fashion by going to patreon.com forward slash agile engineering once again thank you for listening and we'll see you next time